and welcome to episode three of Breaking Down the Big Sea with me, Liz, and me, Tom. So this is going to be a brief intro, I think, today, because actually we only recorded our last podcast, what, two or three days ago, I think. But um, I'm sure I know Tom's definitely had some interesting experiences over the last couple of days. What's new with you, Tom? Uh, Yeah, so so, um, I guess part of the whole having cancer, every sort of niggle you get, you think to yourself, oh, I need to get this checked out, I need to get this checked out. Lucky for me, this time it was me, me, uh, or shall I say, to be polite, my testicles. And uh, yeah, the the appointment finally came through to have a, an ultrasound on it, and um, it was not uh, not pleasant, shall we say? Very very icy, <laughs> yeah, very icy cold uh, ultrasound gel smeared on. <laughs> but it was all good. I I believe so. He, he did. He mentioned uh, that there, there shouldn't be anything to worry about as he was storming out the door. So uh, I don't think I offended him too much. I think he was just busy. But uh, yeah, that, while you were putting your dignity back in your bag again before you were leaving the room, <laughs> yeah, something like yeah. that. But, so uh, you've had uh, you've had your balls ultrasounded, and uh, I've been to Wales and back twice, and I'm now going to Lincoln because uh, I've been taking my youngest to uni, and uh, the Wales situation was not ideal. So. He's now changing uni and off to Lincoln tomorrow. So uh, it's been a, my child is off, I'm free. Oh no, he's back. He's going. Is he going? Is he here? So what's, uh, so what's he, what's he going to be doing in Lincoln? Criminology. Criminology, wow. So it works out well. Lincoln's obviously a lot nearer to home than Wales is. But um, yeah, it's been an interesting week of unis and clearing and UCAS and, oh, all the hoops that you have to jump through to get accommodation organised at the last minute. But we've done yeah. it. He's got a flat. He's got accommodation. So we're all good. And a big shout out to Lincoln University there. We all know how good yeah. that is. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of my other mm. children is there at the moment. And my oldest child nearly went there. I changed her mind at the last minute as well. So it obviously runs in the family. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I think that's about all that's been gone on this week. I think that's been enough. I think between the two of us, we've had some experiences. Considering it's only been two days, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is true, actually. Yeah, no. And uh, this week, our guest we've got on is Sam Rose, who's going to be sharing her story of how cancer's affected her life. And um, I know she's written a book about it as well. So hopefully that's going to be really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I've got the book myself. <laughs> Having a little two-year-old, I've, I've not read much of it so far, but uh, it's, it's quite eye-opening. So, all being well, we'll get quite a good story from Sam. Brilliant, looking forward to it. So today we're joined by Sam, who I've wanted to get onto our podcast from since I was brainstorming the idea. Sam is a PhD student with a fascinating story surrounding Lynch syndrome, and as she describes it, the world's worst loyalty program. So Sam, like take that. us. <laughs> so Sam, take us back to the beginning when you first experienced your any issues. Hi, well, um, thank you for having me. Um, so I first 
um, kind of my story started when I was 22 um, and the first thing that happened to me was that I had uh, some bleeding um, from my bottom which wouldn't stop um, so I went to the doctor who sent me to um, A&E where I had a blood transfusion and um, met my um, who was the guy who was going to be my consultant for the next uh, 10 years, who's only just recently retired, um, which is such, such a shame when you have a good doctor who retires. Um, and over the, the, the next few months, I had a few investigations and it turned out that I had bowel cancer. And basically they they said to me because there were they found so many polyps when they did my colonoscopy and because I was so young it's back in 2010 I was only 22 um they said that I should have my entire colon removed and have a colostomy bag put in um so yeah, that that happened so I had my, my bowel removed um, and I had this uh, it's called an, an, an ileostomy bag the, the one that I had um, so I had that for five months and then they reversed it so when they how did that reversed... sorry as a 22 year old how did that make you feel to to have to go through something like that it was really strange because um I obviously I I felt like really upset about it, but also I I was probably a little bit in shock and a bit kind of numb to all of it. And I think at the time when I was I was going through it and you know being told you have to have all of these exams and then this is what the medical team's going to do, um, it is very much a case of, of of just getting on with it with it for me. And then. Um, it wasn't really until after the surgery that I could actually kind of stop and process everything. Um, and I've heard from a lot of people that, that they have a similar experience. No, it, it all kind of hits you afterwards, um, mm. which There's is a lot the... of work involved as well with ileostomies, isn't there? Ankylostomies. It's, it isn't just an operation and then you're over it. It's a, you know, an ongoing, you know, with the changing of the bags and everything like that. It's a lot. It's a lot, isn't it? It is, yeah. I was so grateful to have, like, my mum helped me so much. You know, she used to help me change um, my bags in, in the morning and, and everything. And if, if I had um, a leak or I needed to, to change in the middle of the day, I had, like, an emergency with it or something, she was just always there. Um, and I like to think, you know, if I was having a, a, a permanent stoma, then I would have been um, more self-reliant more quickly because... But because we knew it was only going to be temporary, I kind of did lean on um, my mum quite a bit during that time. Um, but as I say, um, it was just a temporary one. So what they do is they, they can do a reversal, which is where they make a kind of makeshift large intestine out of part of your small intestine. Um, and it learns wow. to kind of absorb the fluid and stuff. It's so clever. I mean, mm. it's it's really pretty amazing our bodies are amazing and medical science is incredible yeah and we're so much more resilient than we think that we are as well yeah. i think absolutely yeah yeah um so so yeah i had this um surgery for for the reversal and they kind of plumbed me all back together again 
Um, and that was really tough as well, actually, because, you know, your insides have all been kind of replumbed and they're learning to, you know, basically go to the toilet normally again. Um, and after surgery, I think probably even if it's not um, like a bowel related surgery, you know, sometimes things take a little while to wake up. And if, you know, if you're not going to the toilet, then you're being um, sick because, you know, just things aren't quite working properly. So there was also that period in the hospital after I'd had this surgery that um, kind of they, they'd always had planned for me. Um, but I guess I had chosen it. You know, I, I could have just decided to just have the bag forever. Um, and, and I was being sick and I, I wasn't going to the toilet and things just hadn't really woken up yet. And I did have this um, this period of time where I, I was just like, oh, my gosh, what have I done to myself? Have I made the, yeah. completely the wrong decision? Um, and I could have avoided this, all yeah. of this. Yeah, getting yeah. used to the, the bag and the elostomy and everything and actually... And then suddenly you're kind of going, it's almost like a reverse step, isn't it? Because your yeah. body's then got to completely learn how to do something differently again. Yeah. Yeah. It, it did feel a bit sort of like going backwards and, and then, yeah, having to kind of relearn your body all over again. Um, mm -hmm. So so that was kind of like my the first, like the general bit of, of surgery. And then it was in September 2011 when me and my parents had this genetic testing and we found out that we all have Lynch syndrome um, and that is a genetic condition that makes people more likely to get certain types of cancer um, like bowel and some um, gynecological cancer as well it depends um, which uh, kind of variant you have depends on um, uh, decides what what your risks are um, and my situation is a little bit different as well because um my so my parents had have the faulty gene um they they both do and you inherit um like one gene from each parent so mum's got a good gene and a bad gene dad's got a good gene and a bad gene so I could have inherited both of their good genes or I could have inherited a bad gene from mum and a good gene from dad or vice versa but of course I didn't I inherited both of them bad ones <laughs> i kind of thought this was gonna go that way <laughs> yeah which is why we're sat here today um luckily my my sister didn't um inherit any either of the the bad ones so she and her right. children are, are absolutely fine um my brother on the other hand we think that he probably did inherit both of them and he did um pass away from a brain tumor when he was 16 and i was one year old um of course right, so we didn't think yeah didn't know anything about kind of Lynch syndrome or anything way back then, but um, I don't know if it's been com confirmed now. But but yeah, we we think that you know it must have been like the Lynch syndrome was the reason yeah. for that as well. Terrible. Yeah. Am I right in saying that with Lynch syndrome, um, is it the average age for people to show signs of that is sort of their forties, meaning you were quite early to show signs of it. Am I right? I don't, I don't know, to be honest. Um, I I don't really do much research on it. I, I especially don't do much research on, um, I think it's called CMMRD, which is the, the thing I have having inherited both genes, because I think it's just so scary to think, oh, gosh, then does that mean that like my chances of things going pear-shaped are um, doubled? I so I, I do kind of... Um, 
yeah, I don't, I don't Google much. Um, which no, no, I think a lot of us learn that the hard way, don't we? Not to yeah. Google too yeah. much. <laughs> I think that's probably for the best. Yeah. Um. So, so yeah. So that that was kind of the um the genetic testing, and then because of the Lynch syndrome, that means that I've had to have regular tests every year because my risk is higher. So. Um, things like CT scans, gastroscopies, um, flexible sigmoidoscopy, which is like a colonoscopy, but it's just for the the pouch, so it doesn't, it's not quite so invasive. Um, yeah, so that's um, that's every, every year I'm having um, that testing, and then in 2018 I had my second and third diagnoses um, of cancer as well. Um, so one of them was. Um, I was I had an MRI for something completely um, unrelated because I kept having abscesses um, and then the MRI picked up um, that I had these uh, abnormal uh, abnormal lining of, of the womb you know something wasn't wasn't quite quite right there so right. I went to a, a gynecologist and um, he said you know because of my age and that he wasn't particularly uh, concerned I was like all oh, right okay so I just kind of went away um, and then he got in touch again and said actually I've been looking at Lynch syndrome I've been researching it and I think that you should go for um, further exams because you know because of your risk there and it's it's a good thing that he did um, so that kind of had the the MRI and had this this other exam and then I also had my annual gastroscopy um, went off for a lovely holiday uh, in Florida with my parents and came back home to lots of um, messages uh, or missed calls from, from the hospital um, asking me to make appointments. So um, they asked me to make an appointment with the gynecologist for uh, the Friday. And then on the Monday or the Tuesday, my consultant rang me uh, well, his secretary rang me and said, can you meet with your consultant? However, he will be on the ward because it's not his normal consultation day. So you're going to have to go up to the ward and, and find him there, um, you know, which obviously sounded like urgent and, you know. Yeah, that's starting to sound worrying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so that was on the Thursday. So um, my partner and I went to see my consultant and he said oh yeah um, we found some cancer cells in your duodenum which is part of the small bowel um, so we're going to have to in investigate that so right okay I was kind of I was almost expecting it I mean obviously I was expecting it because he called me in um, but there was there was just something telling me beforehand as as well I don't know um, if it was because it had been a while since I'd had um, my last gastroscopy or I'd been waiting on something that was making me anxious about it so and obviously there's a risk that they're going to find something when they're doing the gastroscopy so I did kind of almost see it coming and I was really accepting of it I was like right okay fine um, we'll, we'll deal with it and then the next day I had my appointment with the gynecologist um, which I thought was going to be about uh, these abscesses that I'd been having and you know what were yeah. they um what was what was that caused by um and it turned out they they said to me um that you have uh pre definitely precancerous and possibly cancerous cells in the lining of the womb 
and that was the day oh, after goodness. I'd found out about the the duodenal cancer. How did how did you cope with that? I'm assuming that the I, second I don't one think probably I did. tipped you over. <laughs> yeah, it did. Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, how 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 do you even define coping anyway? Mm, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a difficult one, one, isn't it? Um, yeah, it was just be, really awful time just trying to deal with like both of these things at once. Um, so I had like various uh, further tests and stuff, um, and it was a bit of a waiting game really because you had these two different medical departments talking to each other, deciding you know we've got these two cases going on at the same time. What on earth? You know what we're going to do with her yeah, what um, do we deal with first how do we do it yeah exactly yeah. so they decided that i was going to have a hysterectomy um and they also decided eventually that i was going to have a whipple surgery um which is a really big operation and it just involves kind of lots of different organs and kind of rejigging everything and removing things so they removed in the whipple um the duodenum the gallbladder the bile duct and the head of the pancreas and i think that's everything i really do lose track of which organs <laughs> i have <laughs> and which been taken away <laughs> yeah um so so that that was that was the, the plan um and they kind of before that happened they sent us to see a fertility specialist in London so me and my partner went there um to talk about the possibility of um like freezing some eggs or you know if we could even maybe try and get pregnant before um the surgery or, or however they, they were going to deal with it and, and just talk about all, all of our options because um, how old were you then would you have been 23 then I was 30 then 30 oh sorry yeah still yeah, really young to be having a hysterectomy isn't it it's a really young age it is yeah I kind of expected to have a hysterectomy at, at some point um right. probably at about the age of 35 because that's when the risk goes up so I, I I would have had a preventative um hysterectomy anyway um so we went to see this guy and he told us that if we stimulate the ovaries um for sort of fertility purposes then there's also the risk of um like stimulating the lining of the womb which carries a risk of the cancer growing yeah um and we were really just on, on the same page of you know we don't want to take any risks even if it means you know not being able to have biological children it's like you know my partner said you know your health is just you know the the, the only priority that's it um and it, it made it it just made things really simple as well, I think, for for the medical team. It's like, yeah, we're just we're just gonna have the hysterectomy, we're just gonna do it. Um and deal with the fallout of uh, the emotional fallout of being childless uh, later on, I guess. Um Did you Absolutely at the age of thirty before you were told that was children something that had entered your mind and at the back of your mind thinking at thirty five it will probably be too late. Was that still something that you were thinking of before you hit that 35 mark? Yeah, I mean, me and my partner have been together for a really long time. So we met at, at university. Uh, so we've been together for 15 years now. So in 2018, we've been, been together for a long time. And, you know, we talked about um, children as, you know, something that, that would happen down the road. You know, maybe it'd be uh, a happy accident. It wasn't something that we were particularly... Um, planning and I've 
never felt that you know that huge maternal urge that 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 some women have you know um it's always been one of those things for me where if it if it happens then then that's great and you know it'll be it'll be fantastic um but it it, it wasn't something that was a, a huge urge for me but even so uh when yeah. you're told that you can't then then that still is a lot to to deal with yeah. It is, yeah, absolutely. Because as you say, it's it's the the choice is taken away from you then, isn't it? Yeah. That's I think one of the things that hits people so hard with cancer and the the operations and the treatment and things is it does take away your choices in life and you know, it's not really anything you can do about it because as you say, your health has to come first. Yeah. It's just another example of how you kind of lose that control, don't you? I feel like yeah. cancer takes away so much control from us. I think it does. You're so right on that one. And so, yeah, so we went, went to have the hysterectomy um, in the s- September and had a couple of months to recover and then went back in for the Whipple, which was um, eight hours surgery because um, like, all of the organs were kind of stuck together. So I think they spent a couple of times just kind of separating things as well. Um, and then a couple of days in the high, de- high dependency unit at the hospital and sort of a, a 10 day total stay. So it was really, um, really difficult to re- recover from, really painful. I can Afterwards, imagine, yeah. Yeah. I think that's Did the thing, it, isn't it? It's just such an impact on your entire body. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah, my, my work were really good about it, though. Um I did end up taking uh, five months off from September to February, and then sort of eased eased back in, kind of part time. Um, and they they pulled me, they paid me my full wage for the entire five months. They were really good well, in, in that way. That really helps because just knowing financial. That, that's the other thing I think that people don't realise the financial impact of it. Because suddenly you can't work, and if you know, you can't sort of say, "Well, I'll just pull myself together and come in," because it's just physically impossible at that time and it financially it hits people really hard that's really good to know yeah just one one thing less to worry about isn't it yeah. what was your job at the time what were you doing uh, digital marketing which i'm still doing now with the same company oh brilliant so yeah, yeah. sticking with them yeah feel free to uh give them a shout out i'll uh oh, yeah i could have been to you <laughs> yeah <laughs> um it's uh, silver disc they're, they're a digital marketing marketing agency in Northamptonshire, and wow. and they treat their employees well. It is, <laughs> and, and it doesn't always happen like that because I know no. that my mine certainly wasn't that way. I know a lot of people who have not had that great experiences with their employers, so that's really good to hear because it makes a huge difference, doesn't it? Because it's one less pressure, one less thing to be worrying about in the middle of it all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I worry about people kind of in other countries that don't have, you know, I think we're quite good in terms of like employment law here in, in the UK, but, you know, especially places like the US when they have to worry about um, like health insurance and things on, on top of it, it must be such a burden. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You were finally out of hospital after 10 days. I bet it was good to be home. It was, yeah. It was, it was really strange. It was... I still remember being in the car on on the way home. It was it was very surreal, just being driven through the town again, um, and it, it was quite difficult as well because both of um, those surgeries happened in 
uh, Leicester, which is about an hour's drive from where I actually live. Um, so yeah, trying to my, my partner, bless him, just trying to drive really as gently as possible so as not to hurt me. It was um, yeah difficult, and yeah. It, it really impacts. Um, it really impacted what what we did afterwards as well. So we were offered um, an appointment with a dietitian because sometimes after you've you've had Whipple, um, it's it's very difficult to eat. I remember my appetite was all over the place you know I, I was really hungry and then I wasn't hungry at all and I could hardly eat anything anyway because my appetite was so um so small and I just couldn't face it so they offered um an appointment to go to see a dietitian um and we said no because we just couldn't face going all the way back to Leicester again yeah yeah it's the thing isn't it it's just it's the constant back and forth and all of the appointments and all of the dealing with things afterwards as well and you just want to be at home you just want to try and just get better yeah and even when you are better that I think there's so much administrative stuff to do as a, as a patient as well you know chasing people for test results and arranging appointments and you know make, trying to advocate for yourself and just make sure that things are progressing like like they should be um and it's it's a lot of pressure because then you feel like you know if it all goes wrong somehow you know um, like what what is your responsibility as as a patient and how much of that do you feel like is is your fault if um, things don't happen when they they should um, or even you know after you've had that that first cancer diagnosis and then and then you've gone into remission you're worried about um, recurrence you know it feels like the burden is is on me to, to keep an eye out for things and um you know i i could you know blame my, myself if i end up missing something like for example that gynecologist who said oh yeah you're you're probably fine and sent me away and then actually said oh no because of your lynch syndrome i do want to check it out properly i probably should have said actually i have lynch syndrome i think that we should look at this properly I think that there is a fear there that understandably stops people from from maybe doing um, everything that that they should. I think because we don't want to come across as a know-it-all, but we know our condition better than anyone. And there is a real fine line between where you need to go in and you need to advocate for yourself. But as you said, being your own advocate is exhausting. There's so much to keep on top of. It's actually interesting because it's, there's so many stories where people have said, actually, you know, the doctor said it was fine. But when I left, they looked at my notes and went, ah, hang on a minute, we need to look at this again. It's just those odd doctors that really change our lives that have stopped for a second and taken a look at who we are as a person and then said, oh, maybe we need to look a little bit further into this. But yeah, you are right. There's a massive onus on the patient to kind of sorting it out themselves and that is absolutely exhausting after everything you've been through yeah and it's just when, when you have a genetic condition especially and you know that you have this, this higher risk it really is just never ending because there's just always going to be um tests to go to so it does sometimes feel like there isn't kind of other there, there, there is a light at the end end of the tunnel but yeah, so sometimes it does it does feel 
it's not there's ending. not really an ending to it is there you know people yeah. kind of think oh okay you've had your operation or you know you've had your treatment everything's finished it's all all good now and actually it's not and it it is I'm in a similar position because of my late effects from my treatment and is that fact that you it is never ending you are constantly going to have to be monitored there's constantly going to be those reminders of of why you're there and of what you've been through you know and I think that's a really hard one to get your head around sometimes because you sometimes you just want to forget about it and just move on but you can't because it's part of your life now yeah definitely and I think that that's something that a lot of people don't understand as well like thinking about you know how people treat you after you've had you you know you've been in remission and it's all over and they kind of think oh you're you're healthy again now because you know they they want you to be okay um which is completely understandable but actually mentally we're probably you know almost definitely not okay because we're processing everything that's happened we're worried um for for the future and yeah it's it's cancer it doesn't just away just like that and that was the thing that especially the first time um surprised me the most after I'd had that bowel operation just kind of expecting um everything to go back back to normal but instead I like it didn't even really properly hit me until like maybe a year or so after everything um and yeah it got to like 2012 like a couple of years after my diagnosis and I was thinking oh should I um you know maybe speak to a therapist or should get some counseling or something um because yeah it just it just still it wasn't sitting with me was there any kind of like mental health support offered at all because I know it is really dependent on what area you're in what hospitals some are amazing with it some have nothing and you know so it's just interesting to see what you you were offered or what there was available yeah so back in 2010 I don't really remember there being very much at all like maybe there was a leaflet um and then 2018 I think like maybe there was a little bit more said um but again um it it was it was difficult. Um, there's just so so many issues around it. I don't even really know where to begin answering the question. Um, I mean, firstly, um, not having chemo and just having surgery meant that I didn't go to the cancer centre at the hospital. Didn't even really know that there was a cancer centre there. Had no idea what they did, that it was, you know, um, related to Macmillan and they had support there. Or, or whatever else still don't really know too much about it to be honest so there is kind of feeling out of the loop in that respect because um because of just having the surgery and not not being in that place um also the time when they ask you if you need support I think a nurse asked me how I was coping and if I needed to speak to somebody um before I had my hysterectomy and my whipple at which point um, I was just like not in the place to need or want to talk to somebody because I was in, as I said before, you know, just kind of going through the motions and doing what I was told and, and sort of getting on with it. Um, if they'd have asked me afterwards, 
um, at, say, my six-month follow-up, she needs to talk to somebody, then, yeah, maybe I would have said, yes, that, that would be really good. Um, especially the second time around, because I knew, um, you know, how much it hit me afterwards emotionally the first time. So I, I did envisage myself having um, emotional difficulties after the second and third diagnosis as well. Um, I was actually quite surprised that it was, I guess, easier emotionally this time because I was just used to it, I suppose. I think you get a little bit numb to it all as well in some ways, yeah. That's, I mean, it is, it is really interesting because you're so right that it is the time afterwards where when the dust has settled and you've kind of recovered from the operation a little bit more is when you get to stop and actually start to think about things and that's when you really need that. And I will probably end up saying this in every single episode that we do, but the mental impact of cancer is just as hard as the physical. And I think that's something that we've really got to get across to people so much more. I mean, we've got, um, I was, I was just starting to read your, your book. Um, so your book is gut feelings, uh, coping with cancer and living with Lynn syndrome available on Amazon, isn't it? Yep. Yep. Um, so yeah, I was just, uh, just reading well, starting to read that with a two-year-old. I've not got very far into it at the moment. But um, you were talking about the guilt that you're putting your parents through. I mean, that to me just screams that your your mental health at the time, it, well, not necessarily at the time, it might still be fragile now, but to, to think, immediately think that it's your parents that you're putting the pressure on and you're not thinking about your own health at that that moment i mean your mental health must have been somewhat all over the place at the time yeah i think it's just that prevailing memory of going being in the consultant's room with my parents and um you know them giving us the the news and mum you know just just crying next to me and it's just like oh it's i don't I didn't feel guilty in in the sense that you know it's it's my fault or I I caused it or something. It's just I don't know. I think it's an uncomfortable feeling to feel like um, somebody is is getting somebody else is getting ups, upset about my mm. situation. Say, yeah. Whereas my dad was sat there and he was quizzing the consultant like, "Are you the best man for this job?" As <laughs> <laughs> all dad should. <laughs> Absolutely. I think it made the consultant quite uncomfortable. <laughs> it's right. My dad said to, I think, my consultant, um, I've got private health insurance. She would like, we'll go and send her to that. She'll get the best care ever. And they said, uh, no, the best care she'll have is with the NHS with this one. Booper's not going to do anything for her. Yeah, I spoke to um, somebody about um, doing doing something privately. I can't remember what, because I don't, I don't really remember having any... Um, uh, feeling that that I, I would actually you know pay for anything private but I remember speaking to somebody about it in the NHS um, and and they said that actually if you it was just like a, a certain one certain part of it I think I, I was talking about and they said if if you um, get that done with a sort of a private place and then get the other stuff done on, on the NHS then that really just makes it um, more difficult for us to kind of communicate and keep things 
running smoothly. Uh, yeah, I can kind of see that, I guess. It does sort of make sense. Just going back to the um, mental health support, did you actually get anything in the end or have you just sort of done it yourself and worked your own way through it all? So in 2012, a couple of years after um, it it all happened, the first time I, mes- I messaged my uh, A-level psychology teacher on Facebook uh, to ask if he saw anybody privately because he used to be my my favourite teacher um, and obviously he was a, a psychologist I wanted to, to know if he if I could speak to him because I knew him and I thought that could be you know more comfortable than talking to a stranger and he wrote me back and said that he um, doesn't practice privately um, and kind of told me to be mindful um, which didn't particularly help to be honest um, but I thought in hindsight, looking back at that, I, I think what I really wanted at the time was for me to tell him what had happened to me, which I, I explained in, in the message, and for him to be as shocked as I still was, because it felt like everybody around me was kind of not not over it, but, you know, it was old news to them. Um, and to, you know, really just be heard and just, just tell somebody my, my story and to, to get their their reaction um and i did kind of go back and forth about um counseling for a really long time um until 2017 i decided to go and see a private counselor um i saw her for um i think six sessions and it was it was okay um but i feel like i didn't really know what i wanted to get out of therapy i feel like um what I was saying to her was I want to feel better um about you know my my situation I want to feel um less health anxiety and her reaction was kind of well you know of course you feel this way there's not really anything that you can do about it which to me I I, I didn't really want to accept that that didn't really seem good enough for me um so I I stopped doing doing therapy and then over the years um was sort of thinking about it on and off again it's kind of like every time um I'd be worried about um a scan or a test coming up then I'd sort of my mind would go back to therapy or if I was worried about anything else um and I was kind of getting sick of like bouncing um on and off this idea so actually yesterday I had a video call with um who I think is going to be my new therapist and she was um really lovely and it felt like um a conversation whereas the first therapist I had it was very much um her waiting for me to talk which I know is what a lot of therapists do um but it just felt really awkward for me because I didn't really feel like we bounced off each other at all I really kind of needed somebody to reflect me more I guess if that makes sense um so yeah really really excited to be getting back into it again because I think I was going to ask as well whether maybe writing your book was quite therapeutic and maybe that sort of helped a little bit with things writing is therapeutic writing my book um it's probably the hardest thing I've ever written um so I wrote the first draft must have been a couple of years ago maybe 2019 um 
and I, I wrote it really quickly. I wrote it in um, maybe a month. I wrote the first draft and then um, kind of put it down. And every so often I would come back to editing it. Um, but I'm sure you can imagine it was an incredibly hard thing to write because the the first part of it really is just, okay, here's you know all of the medical stuff that's happened to me from beginning to end and um, it's really difficult to revisit um and I was thinking about getting it published um I sent it to one publisher um I sent them three chapters and they asked to see the full manuscript um but then ultimately declined it and then it got to kind of the end of 2020 and I thought you know what I'm just gonna do it I'm just gonna self-publish it and that gives me um complete control over it um you know, I'm, I'm not going to have to work with an editor who says, oh, you need to, um, I don't know, expand more on this point, put more feeling in here or whatever. Um, because, again, emotionally, it's difficult to go back to. I don't want, you know, somebody telling me, well, you can't publish it until it's reached this standard. So I thought I'll edit it to the standard that I'm happy with. And then I have complete control over it. And then I'll, I'll self-publish it. Um, I created the the front cover myself published it with amazon um yeah and then it was it was just out there i did uh, a book launch i did podcast interviews um and and yeah really just handled it all myself which was a really fun project to do as well really taking it beyond the writing um and yeah i'm really really glad that i that i did it that way i think yeah just being able to share your story can be really it can be really powerful can't it yeah, and I think that's what I've wanted all these years as well, because now I do feel better about my situation, especially compared to, um, say, how I felt when I messaged my old psychology teacher, you know, and, yeah, just, just wanting um, my story to be heard. I've told my story, goodness knows how many times now, through writing, um, through guest blog posts, through poetry, through podcasts, um, through my book, of course. Um, and now I'm doing my PhD on the whole thing as well. So I've had lots of opportunities to tell my story. And I think, yeah, I I, I don't feel that um, that's something missing there anymore. Just to go back, because I've been waiting to bring up the PhD, um, so you're researching how creative writing can have an emotional and mental health benefits for people living after cancer. Is, is that right? Yes. So I kind of started out my research and I wanted to know, can we write our way out of fear is, is how I termed it. Um, and I've kind of got to the point now where I'm thinking, well, well, no, 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 we can't. Um, so it's my initial thoughts were, what are the emotional and mental benefits of, of writing about cancer? Um, and now I'm, I'm thinking more like, um, how can I make meaning from my experience? So it's a autoethnographic study, which means um it's it's kind of all about my experiences I like to think of myself as Louis Theroux um but I'm interviewing myself I love Louis Theroux excellent <laughs> love Louis Theroux he is he's, amazing he's a national treasure he absolutely is yeah absolutely no we're good on that one I love that <laughs> um and it's it's practice-led 
Um, so 70% of my research is just me um, writing. It's just my, my creative writing. Um, so it's going to end up, I think, being a collection of poems and essays and kind of the mid the middle ground um, in between and kind of hybrid works, um, which is really um, kind of interesting to experiment with like different forms of writing and things. Um, and I started off my studies thinking, um, yeah, I'm going to spend the next six years because that's how long it is because I'm doing it part time. Um, you know, writing about my cancer experiences and how it makes me feel and all this kind of thing. Um, and then I got about halfway through my first year and realised, you know what, I've been writing about cancer for 10 years, kind of written it to death a bit now, you know. Um, maybe I don't just want to to write about that. So it's kind of, it's not moving away from um, writing about cancer because that's still at the, the core of the research I'm also now grappling with these really big questions like okay this has happened but who am I outside of my cancer diagnosis um because I, I really do think that it's had an impact on my identity and, and how I I see myself and kind of losing sight of who I was before and especially because it started really when I, I was so young you know I think 22 just come out of uni still looking for um you know my first like proper job to start my career they are still quite formative years really so now I'm thinking well what impact has that experience had on my identity and how can I kind of find myself again through writing um and it's also something that I'm hoping that therapy is gonna be able to to help me with um because I, th I think that also gives me an opportunity to see how another person sees me, um, somebody who's object objective as well. Um, so, yeah, I'm hoping that the therapy will also help me with my, my PhD because ev everything does kind of tie together. Fingers crossed that it does. Yeah, I also think it's something like that. I mean, one of my – the, the first counsellor, or she was an oncology psychologist that I was with, said to me start writing because she said do you like to write and I said yeah of course I love to write so she said start writing and it just opened up so much for me when I started writing that I realized as you're writing you find a lot of things just come out that you you're not really conscious of you might be aware of them subconsciously but you don't really give them a voice or give them any air time and when you start writing these things just start to come out you as you read you read them and you sort of think wow where did that come from and I think writing's so good at opening up the like the sort of the subconscious. Yeah, I, I love that about writing. I, I love when I, when I've just I've just taken to to my pen and and I just look look back and think, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't really know that about yeah. myself before I started writing, and it's like a journey of self discovery. I love it. it really is, and you ri literally have no idea about it until the words come out, and as you're typing, you're kind of going. Oh yeah, 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 yeah! It is writing so powerful. Yes. Um. So, this question I like to ask pretty much every guest. Um, if you were to to sort of see your your younger self before the cancer journey, what what would you say to them? What message would you want to give them, or anybody that is 
about to go through a similar sort of journey as you, what you know, what message would you like to convey to them? For somebody who's going through it or about to go through it, I would just really try and remember that good times and bad times don't last forever. I remember after, I think it was after my hysterectomy, um, I was having all sorts of kind of after effects from the surgery because it's not just painful for, you know, your your belly because it's a, it was an open surgery, but also, um, you know, again, try to just get your, your guts moving again and get sort of get things working properly um, and ended up having, I really don't know why, I ended up having um, some kind of mouth sores or, or something and just all these kind of side effects and I felt sick and just felt felt really bad and there was just one point where I th- I thought oh my gosh I just feel so bad I feel like I'm gonna die and I kind of wish that I would because that would just be easier and it's a really hard thing to think but I'm sure I'm not alone in that but it was just temporary and if you're feeling like that too or if you're scared to that level too um it is just temporary and there is still there are still good things to experience even while you're going through all of this um as well when i was in that period in 2018 just waiting to hear okay how are they going to tackle both of these things and what what are they going to do with me it was a really difficult time emotionally but a prevailing memory of that year is the amount of time that I spent with my best friend just sitting in the pub and just chatting and just being distracted um or whatever and that was I've told him this it was such a shining light for me in in that dark time so yeah it's just that good and bad don't happen in isolation because that's mm. that's not life you know it's good good things are still are still going to happen and you will feel better and then you'll feel bad again, but you will feel better again. It's it's okay. And I think it's always amazing to to realise that um, people always be a bit astounded by this when you say that actually sometimes cancer can bring some really good things into your life as well. It, yes, it's negative. It's of course it's as we say every time it's an utter shit show, but it actually can bring in a lot. And I guess if you look back at all the things that have happened in your life because of cancer, it won't all be bad. Yeah. I mean, my my PhD wouldn't have happened without it. Um, You know, maybe I wouldn't be sat here doing this podcast. Well, obviously, I wouldn't be doing this podcast with you. Maybe I wouldn't be doing any podcasts with anybody, you know. Um, It really has led me to, you know, think about um, how I want to develop professionally because, um, like previously, I, I never would sit and talk to strangers on the internet um verbally i have such um i'm I'm very shy and introverted and have you know self-diagnosed social anxiety and and all sorts you know if you'd have said to to me when i was younger you know you're going to be um doing podcasts with people um i was on the radio at one point of like no don't don't be ridiculous that is you know that's nothing that i would ever be able to do um 
and yeah, without without cancer happening, then then maybe that would have been true. Also, I think like the the online cancer community are a massive, massive support network. I think all of us and anybody who comes on this show would say the same thing that they've made such it's made such a huge impact on our lives and that's where the internet you know is amazing and I guess in even in the 10 years since you were diagnosed and sorted to now the the online support seems to be just growing and growing and that's that's brilliant as well yeah I didn't know too much about the online community back in 2010 there was uh, an online forum for um which is the ia association um for people with ileostomies and and pouches um so i i did go there for kind of practical um like advice and and support quite a lot um back in 2010 um but i think what would have really helped as well at, at the time was um other online communities that i i know about now and people that um, you know, I go to a lot of um, webinars put on by Stupid Cancer. I think they're absolutely in- in- incredible, and I've loved their digital um, cancer con as well for the past couple of years. Um, has been awesome, um, and places like I, I had cancer dot com, um, which is just full of really great people. Um, guest blogging as well. Um, Grit Health, Elephants and Tea. Um, yeah, there's, there's, so, there's so many. <laughs> I don't know if you're on Instagram, but I don't know if you've come across the cancer patient on Instagram, yes, but that is, oh, we all love the cancer <laughs> patient. That's one of the best ones out there because that, that one, just sometimes you just need someone to say what you're thinking, but you really don't want to say because everyone's going to say, you can't say that. And sometimes they say it for you and it's like, yes, somebody gets it. Yeah. Yeah. And it really taps into kind of the humour of cancer as well, doesn't it? Because I guess it's weird to say, but there is a lot of humour to get from cancer. And I don't know, oh, there you is just have some, to laugh, yeah. don't you? Oh, there is some brilliant humour. The dark, twisted side of cancer humour, <laughs> I think is something that only a cancer patient can get. Yeah. I've shared yeah. things before, people have gone, oh, you, you can't say that. I'm like, I can and I will. I think for most of us, it's like a coping mechanism, isn't it? You know, if you don't, you might just drive yourself crazy. So you just have to. Yeah, definitely. And I, I hope with my book as well, um, I, obviously a lot of it is kind of really dark, like here's all this medical stuff that happened, but I tried to lighten it up partly with you know like other aspects of my life and, and my, my family and um, different trips that we took and that, and that kind of thing. But also there is the, the dark humour in, in there that, um yeah hopefully people appreciate as well i think anybody who's gone through cancer appreciates the dark humor it it is a shining light in a dark time yeah i think that's the thing as well it's just bringing people all together um you know we'd hope that maybe there might be someone out there who's just discovered that they genetically have lynch syndrome you know and if they listen to this it's understanding that there's other people out there that get it and it just connects everybody and and that's fantastic and that's what we're all about is just connecting through stories yeah it's definitely we're a, we're a powerful community i think yeah massively so yeah well it's uh, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you sam it has been an honor and a privilege and thank you so much for sharing your story with us thank you yeah, thank been- you 
Yeah, thank you. It's been, been really good. I always love the opportunity to chat to like-minded people. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Lynch Syndrome UK was founded in early 2014 by a group of people that met on a social media support group originally set up by the late Janet Norwich. Being frustrated by the lack of information and stories of erratic screening regimes throughout the UK, they came together to change things for people with Lynch Syndrome and their families for the better. They are passionate in their mission to raise awareness both to the medical profession and the general public about this little-known genetic condition in the process to helping to save lives. In their mission statement, Lynch Syndrome UK aims to ensure that for the public benefit, people and their families affected by Lynch Syndrome are provided with support in the form of information, signposting and listening, also to increase public awareness of the syndrome, educating members of the general public and healthcare professionals. Their vision is that all people affected by Lynch syndrome in the UK have access to standardised screening, thus enabling prevention of the development of cancer and early diagnosis enabling survival. Lynch Syndrome UK is an all-volunteer organisation and is founded and governed by Lynch syndrome survivors and their families. The charity is dedicated towards protecting families and saving the lives of those at high risk for a hereditary genetic predisposition to various cancers which often strike at an early age. If diagnosed early, they believe that Lynch syndrome survivors have positive outcomes that enhance survival, longevity and quality of life, as well as the emotional well-being of those who are affected by Lynch syndrome. The charity's aim is to be the leading source of information and support for individuals and families affected by Lynch syndrome in the UK, for more information, please visit www.lynch-syndrome-uk.org. Thanks for listening to us and we'll be back with episode 4 very soon. <laughs>